Welcome to the Yogi's Roadmap, a podcast featuring Bhavani Sylvia Maki, an international yoga teacher, musician, and author of the Yogi's Roadmap, the Patanjali Yoga Sutra as a Journey to Self-Realization. I'm Shanae Trudeau, a student of Bhavani and a teacher of yoga. These are conversations from the heart. The Yogi's Roadmap podcast explores yoga as a journey of compressed evolution off the beaten path toward breakthrough experiences. Bhavani believes that engaging in the full science and art of yoga uplifts us, deepens our connection with authentic self and to the source of joy within for personal growth and deep transformation. Bhavani Sylvia Maki has been studying the art and science of yoga for nearly 40 years. In her teaching, she interweaves the insights she has gathered into a holistic exploration of the microcosmic and macrocosmic self. Dedicated to exploring yoga in its complete expression, her teachings are steeped in the traditions of Patanjali's classical eight-limbed yoga, with an emphasis on integrity of alignment and the use of yoga as a powerful tool for healing. This project was conceived out of the desire to have more, deeper, intimate conversations with my teacher and a request from one of Bhavani's own teachers, Rama Joyti Vernon, who once said to her, let's get you out of the jungle and into the world. Bhavani lives on the island of Kauai, Hawaii with her husband, Ray, and their son, Nico. Welcome to the Yogi's Roadmap podcast, off the beaten path toward breakthrough experiences. Welcome back to episode 11. I sit here with Bhavani Maki, and it's just such a great honor and a great joy to have these conversations with you, my teacher and my mentor. And I just want to put a little plug out to all the folks to please consider leaving a five-star review and writing a little something for the podcast. This is how the word gets out about the Yogi's Roadmap podcast, and it would mean so much to us if you would do that. So... And hopefully meet a lot to others because, um, you know, I know finding, finding what fits you is finding, as my son would say, a hay in a needle stack, you know, or a, a thread in a needle stack. So there are people who are yearning for this um, and it's hard to find it in the spiritual marketplace, which is uh, very busy. There's a lot of commotion. So, Yeah. Yay. Thanks for that. Yeah. Also, visit bhavanimaki.com for the latest classes and happenings, um, both Kauai and online. It's a one-of-a-kind experience. I speak from personal experience to sit in the presence of someone who really walks their talk. So without further ado. <laughs> yeah, no pressure there. <laughs> no pressure. It's really great to be here with you again. <laughs> Thanks, Janae. Yeah. So... My question for you is, what are these times asking of us as citizens of our locale and as, excuse me, practitioners of yoga? Um, You know, yoga, what it does is it's, you know, it's the remembrance of our resilience 
and that there are forces that are larger than us that are colluding. And rather than kind of like resisting that flow, even the word grace, anugraha, graha means dwelling and anu means kind of like, well, what's the next step? And it's that sense of the nectar. So, um, you know, so much of the time we have our blueprint of how things should unfold. And there's a greater unfolding that's happening within us. Instinctively, um, you know, we cling to comfort. There's Core Sutra on this. Even the wisest of sages has this biological impulse. But how we can participate in this unfolding of evolution, the uncrumpling of consciousness, and to really, um, you know, start to pay attention to the the marks, the the signs, the omens along the way so that we're receiving the transmission. And it's scary because as much as we want to have a map, you know, a map is two-dimensional. So, um, you know, it's really about not getting from point A to B, but about feeling your own resilience and feeling the magic in the moment. So that's a very kind of like... Um, you know, esoteric answer. The exoteric experience is that, you know, we have our real desires and the realization of what is like a lasting desire and what is maybe, um, you know, kind of like a concocted idea or a concept is going to be the experience of our own fulfillment. And sometimes it's a dream that we can't like articulate, but it's that unfolding of the dream. So these crises, remember that word kiki, and it's a Japanese word. I remember speaking to a Japanese woman because I heard it from my teacher Rama. And she said that it's, you know, a, a crisis that presents an opportunity. And oftentimes we won't make that shift or that leap of faith unless it's a critical moment. We procrastinate, we prolong, we self-negate, we undermine ourselves, we distract ourselves. So, um, you know, when I asked this, this woman in Paris, um, she was actually, actually, sorry, in, in, in uh, Montpellier, and she was, you know, an avid student of yoga. Um, and in her kind of like, you know, French was her second language. French was my fourth language. So we managed to kind of communicate, but really it was, it was on a deeper level. And she said, well, Kiki, you know, there's many different definitions. And first she said, it's the left-handed path. So when I think about that, when I feel into that, you know, assuming that you're right-handed, which isn't necessarily the case, but it's kind of the less dominant side. Um, so it's like, you know, doing things maybe from an, using another part of your being that is less accessible, where there's less transmission, where there's less development. And then I said, well, does it mean something else? And she amended this, um, you know, point of view that Rama shared. And she said, it's when you're looking in hindsight. It's something that you thought was going to be your undoing. And you realize that where you are here today is because of that experience. 
that you are able to discover parts of yourself that would have otherwise remained hidden. So life is going to do that. You know, it's kind of like a pressure cooker that's going to, um, you know, when we look at nature, nature's always adapting. It's always variating. And when it has something difficult, you know, there's a difficult experience, dvesha, it will try to move away from it if it's not necessary, but without ego involvement, without the the psychological narrative that underscores so much of what's going on. Um, so it's natural that we're going to avoid, you know, what is painful, but when there's pain that is really, you know, part of fostering our growth and our creativity, we can relax into it. So there's nothing but trouble and nothing but problems for us to face. And sometimes, you know, just by recognizing that the life is a series of thresholds in which we face the very real conditions of suffering. Um, you know, that these are those defining moments at the yoga anushasanam in which we're going to have that breakthrough experience. And yes, it's going to take us off the, the well-trodden path. And this even includes the well-worn path of our excuses, our procrastination, um, our outworn and outdated defense mechanisms, and really, you know, shifting the animal of our body to one that is conducive, that's ready, ready to seize opportunity. And it may not be perfect, but it can be something special. So I really feel that you know, because of the level of attunement that we experience, this is the pain of sattva, where we feel the human condition, we have a sense of compassion, and we have a sense of empathy. Yoga is self-care, and it's taking time to invest in what we care about. You know, when we're, when we're fostering that love, the loving vibration um, the the coherency of our system, you know, of our inner state, recognizing, yeah, I'd rather not be washing toilets, but I like to sit on a clean toilet. Um, you know, it's it's temporary. As once it's clean, it's going to be temporary. This is necessary. This is part of life. Such a mundane example. Um, that you know, through our um, you know, through the self-care, through the compassion for ourselves, we actually, um, you know, hold that field for others. So really how we experience the world on the outside depends 100% on how we feel on the inside. And that's the good news because we don't have as much, um, you know, leverage in the outer world as we do in the inner world. So can we, you know, cultivate that state so that when we face those thresholds, um, something beautiful can happening, can be happening or happen. Mm. Thank you so much. That's, uh, gives me hope. 
<laughs> it's the actually, only thing to that is escape Pandora's box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And more, more than hope, you know, sometimes, you know, hope is a little bit trite, but it's, it's really like, um, something to, to sink my teeth into. And you were mentioning this left-handed path and often people speak about Tantra as the left-handed path. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, Dr. Robert Svoboda wrote a wonderful book on that, the Agori, the left-handed path. And, um, you know, it's said to be the quicker path, but it's very dangerous because so many people just go insane on it. And this is where you, um, you know, radically embrace what you have disdain for and disgust for. So, you know, like traditionally the left-handed path, you would be living in a crematorium or in a burial site. You smear the ashes of um, the corpses, you know, on your body. You live naked. You don't have um, family ties. Um, you know, you, you, eat your food out of the, the cranium of a corpse. You know, it's, it's a pretty radical existence. So most of us aren't going to take that path. And it's not exactly synonymous with what, you know, Kiki means. I'm sure we can draw corollaries where, um, you know, in, in our lineage, Shanae, through Krishnamacharya, it's the householder lineage. So this is where, you know, we live in the world and we're integrating our humanity into the spiritual experience. You know, there's very rare and unique souls, Vairagis, who come into this life and they don't have a desire for the creature comforts. They don't have a desire for um, an intimate relationship with another human being or for even becoming a parent on their own. And they're very unique, right? It's, it's a very, very niche kind of a thing. And it's something that, you know, you're just born that way. For most of us, um, you know, it's about, you know, like as Krishnamacharya's lineage, it's about bringing it into culture, integrating the spirituality into culture. There's not a dichotomy. So, you know, how can we use spiritual practices in order to make us more available for loving. And we can see the macrocosm from the microcosm of our family system. Now, as it says in the Gita, the hardest paths of yoga are being a mother. Doesn't mention father, by the way, um, which is interesting because, you know, it's a pretty like male oriented text in a lot of ways. And also being a spouse so, you know, it, it, it takes some time to get that. We may be really functional in the world and functional on the yoga mat, but as far as those immediate relationships, that's like the real um, litmus test and the real opportunity. And if we can find harmony and respect in differences, that helps us to go out into the world. And it, it you know, the culture of the family then percolates into the culture of the community, of the island, 
or of the nation, of the continent, and of the world. Yeah, thank you for that distinction. So another question that's not on our list, <laughs> but I want to take it a little further because I my my sense um, is that you know for well I'll speak for myself is you know the householder path is um, sounds really great in the ideal is like you get to have really the best of all worlds. It's like finding time for one's formal practice and doing work in the world, maybe raising a family, you know, whatever that happens to be, you know, having a business, I'm not sure. And then there's the path of the ascetic. So, you know, kind of removing oneself from the world, from, you know, these daily, daily tasks. And for me personally, you know, that's, that's never been really appealing because I, I want it all. <laughs> I want it all right now. And um, maybe you can speak a little bit more about Krishnamacharya's lineage and this householder path. You know, um, again, it's like there, there is a, there is a place and there is a function for these mendicants, monks, hermits, nuns, and, you know, in, in different cultures, it's like the community supports that. And a lot of those, you know, they're able to live independently. Now, many aren't. And there is, you know, it, it's like we're not isolated. So now suddenly, you know, there's a mother superior or a father superior. And as soon as we become institutionalized, there's going to be kind of politics and agendas and hierarchies. That's not always true. Um, I feel like, you know, there really isn't an, an avoidance. You, you can't get away from it. You can't. So there's complexities in both situations. Um, but, you know, it was Ramamoha Brahmacharya, who I shared earlier, um, who after, you know, Krishnamacharya basically begged him to teach him. And he wasn't taking students. And in the tradition of yoga, the teacher exacted the payment at the end of the tenure of their training. And he said, I want you to be, a, I want you to have children because this is the evolution of our culture and our society. And as much as we, you know, maybe want to create a bubble around ourselves and be separate, this is where we're, we're really, you know, it, as it said, like we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors, that the children inherit our nervous system. Um, so, you know, what is that, that minuscule demographic of people who are able to live a solitary life without the structure of spiritual community and hierarchy um, you know, it's it's like you have to live somewhere where it's favorable, where you you're not going to be kicked off the land for for squatting or trespassing, where there's food. You know, there's a lot of complexities in that, or have such like a skill in these esoteric practices where you're doing something like tumul, as the Tibetan monks do, where they you know are able to generate internal heat and live in sub-zero temperatures where they're above the tree line and there isn't even fuel, you know? So there, there's austerities no matter where you're going to be. So, you know, dealing with 
you know, the larger context and how, you know, it's also about like, you know, it's our nature to want to keep our species going, right? To have that sense of thriving and of engaging and that, that the human experience. So living in the world is where we do that. And we're kind of paying it forward. I remember having this moment and it was probably a real moment of, of, uh, humility and of spiritual awakening. And I'm not calling myself humble, but it was humbling to realize that everything that I thought that I had accomplished was really from my grandmother, that she had really paved the way so that I, I could have the liberty and the self-agency to do things different, et cetera. And that even the things that I'm doing today, you know, sure, I might experience a smattering of, of, you know, the efforts that I've made, but really I'm doing it for the love of the future generations. That, you know, just in my own family of origin, um, you know, one of the most like gratifying moments was when my son was afraid and he ran up and hugged me because he wanted to seek solace and safety and comfort. And I didn't have that in my childhood. I was usually running from my parents. So that was just like, that was so, you know, it was like such a, such a healing for my spirit and my soul to create a culture um, in which my son felt that way. And then to see his, his ability to have deep empathy and compassion and also be true to himself. It's really, um, you know, yoga is a grassroots system. So we, we do that work on the inside. We do it within the family because the family, there's really no escape, right? You can punch in, you can punch out, go back into your bubble when you're, when you're going to work. But when you come home, is where like the real raw self gets revealed. So Krishmacharya, you know, it, it, he, he furthered that and he supported what his teacher asked of him. He was really kind of like um, being groomed to be the head of this monastic community and he had tenure and financial security, but now he had to take on a wife. And we already know like the, the push me, pull me in relationship where one wants more intimacy, one wants more space and it flip-flops and the different, the different desires and ideals and perspectives and wounds. And it's really a way of, um, you know, bringing, bringing the complexity of the world into the hearth, into the heart. And, and that's where yoga to me is really pragmatic. So as much as we need, you know, these mendicants and these monks meditating and hold, holding a spiritual vibration, it's really about our humanity and that natural evolution, which requires that it's intergenerational healing. It's, it's very interesting. It said that there's, um, you know, in, in like some of the more esoteric teachings of yoga 
that there's the element of, let me see if I can get this straight. There's the Rishi Yogi and there's the Devas. And so where the Yogi is kind of like focused on Lord Shiva, who's sitting above the, the, the tree line, it where everything is frozen. So there's no creation, there's no past, present, or future. It's in a place of stasis, um, you know, and they're doing this to like control the waves, the vritti of, of um, creation. The devas are constantly trying to thwart that because their natural essence is about creation. And we might even think about like, oh, here's this little spermatozoa which is having to like, you know, forge its way through the, the labyrinth of, of the uterus and up into the fallopian tube, you know, and then it has to, you know, there's almost like this, I mean, take it in context, but it has to like penetrate the ovum, right? So there's, you know, this kind of like collision and separation and, and, and uh, polarities, of coming together and, and then the cells, you know, reproducing to create this organism. So these polarities are like Albert Einstein said, the, the magnetic field that we live in. So where the Rishi Yogi is trying to freeze time and space and come into that um, place of, of uh, Nirguna, which is where all of the, the protons, neutrons, and electrons are in a state of equilibrium and there's no interaction. The devas, the nature spirits, are trying to stir up creation because creation is the magic and the beauty of, um, you know, dynamic awareness. So what is kind of more static? What is, what is dynamic? And we need to be careful that we don't make one right or wrong. It's just, you know, we're, we kind of come into the world. Some people might call it karma. You might call it whatever. But we come in the way that we are and to really to listen to that and feel into it. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, it's just being able to get that, that pull, because, you know, sometimes, yes, you know, as you were talking, I realized that sometimes that, that path of asceticism is, um, seems much more easy, <laughs> you know, in easy in air quotes to be able to just, you know, renounce the world and give everything up and, you know, sit there and meditate. And they both have their challenges and their dynamics. And it's like you said, it's, it's about, you know, what we're here to do. <laughs> yeah. And really listening to, and listen, you know, we may go into periods of, um, you know, when, when we're living more internally and, and kind of fostering our own you know, spiritual practices and path. And then we go into a householder phase and then, you know, that relationship may dissolve for various reasons. So it's not a straight line. We don't know. That's, that's the nature of the seasons of our life that we're going to go through. 
but really to see where our concepts are, um, you know, not really touching our own heart and our own soul. So that's where the emotions are how we evolve because they provide feedback. So we have to be careful that our ideas don't get in, in the way of the just the raw experience, you know, of the true experience. And it's like that, like that spermatozoa, you know, being able to crack through the ideas that can actually form accretions around our heart and really being able to sit with that stuff and, and also know that like there's going to be interior yearnings. We've spoken at this, you know, we've touched on it at length, but the fact that you have desire is a beautiful thing. Thank you. So something that keeps coming up for me is this uh, title of yoga teacher. <laughs> because there, I, my, in my experience, there's right now, there's so much variance in the yoga scene, like goat yoga, chocolate yoga, whatever, weekend teacher trainings and the rest. And I'm wondering if you can help clarify the role of practitioner, yoga practitioner and teacher of yoga, different and the same. Yeah. Um, you know, there's that, that's a really rich and salient question. So as far as being a teacher, um, you know, it really comes from being a student. And I just received one of the most beautiful compliments that I've ever received. I was teaching in Half Moon Bay and Natalie Hansen, who I've been working with for about 20 years, um, when she introduced me to the group, she said, Bhavani is one of the most um, like incredible students of yoga that I've ever met. And I was like, I just wanted to weep because that's really where I'm at. And, you know, the, like, I'm always, I'm, I'm really curious about yoga first because I was suffering so deeply and from my own personal familial experience and how could I find coherency? I knew that there was something more than this endless vicious cycle of pain and these ideals in which I never measured up. So, so much of it, you know, was just the physical healing from my own injuries, my emotional healing, my psychological healing. So that's where I came from was really being in touch with my pain. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, just being really curious about that, you know, so the more it's like you're, you're, you're learning, the more these rabbit holes and the, 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 the question becomes more refined. And I, I don't feel like I'm coming from my pain anymore, but I'm just coming from, you know, this love of learning. So, you know, depending on the student and where they're at, being able to meet the student where they're at and to 
reflect back to them that, you know, they, that these desires are really real and to get in touch with those desires and to share that love of self-discovery, of finding coherency in what appears to the unexamined consciousness as chaos and, you know, supporting them in developing their acumen for learning and curiosity. So, you know, my, my teacher, and it's really interesting, Krishnamacharya said this, and my husband who came from another lineage, Ananda Murti, they said, we teach to learn. So I even had teachers in my, you know, primary and secondary schooling who taught subjects that I wasn't particularly interested in. But because of their joy of learning, that was, it was so effusive, it excited me. And it was really, you know, sharing that joy with another person. So helping them to learn how to discern, how to connect with themselves, to develop confidence in themselves, to, to really learn about transmission um, you know, in their own bodies, the, the, the senses are said to be the gateways of consciousness. So to develop clear perception, to understand the foundations of yoga, to understand that, you know, once they get those foundations, that there's so many possibilities, there's more than one way to go. Um, and you're really there to, lift the student up, you know, a vyasa is to check the downward pull. And this comes from, you know, understanding your own psychology, your own character strengths and weaknesses, and helping that other person to appreciate that as well. You know, for some, we have to rein them back. For others, we might have to, like, you know, light a fire underneath them to help them to become more clear in their priorities, to inspire them, to develop, you know, competence and confidence, the the sense of being committed and invested, you know, that you commit yourself to, of course, a student, you know, needs to reciprocate. And if they're reciprocating and you're committed um, with clear boundaries, It's like, it just, you lift each other up. So, you know, having respect for that student, a lot of times, you know, we don't maybe have those kind of mentor relationships in our usual educational experiences. And many of us feel like we were born into families of real dysfunction. So how we can develop a healthy reciprocal relationship. Um, yeah, that's what I feel like we're really sharing with a student is, is to trust in their own capacity to, you know, learn a system, but then become more eclectic and pragmatic so that it's, it's integrated into the life experience. Otherwise, why are we even doing yoga? Yeah that (laughs) yep thank you 
So let me say it this way. You're also a student of astrology. And can you speak more about the science of yoga and the science of astrology as they inform our lives in a pragmatic way? Many people know of the occult sciences, astrology being one of them. And the rhetoric is sort of chalking them up to be a little woo-woo. And yet in my experience of both yoga and astrology is that the implementation and the practice of these long established sciences are really far from out there. They're very grounded in an embodied way. And I'm wondering if you can speak more about that. Yeah. So, God, there's so many layers to this. And when we look at the yoga sutra as yoga chitta vritti nirotha, the vritti are the oscillations, not only of consciousness, but it's the way that creation expresses herself. Okay, the creatrix. And it's said that, you know, all of creation is in response to the creator's question, who am I? So the vritti, we can see it as the movement of the, the celestial bodies. We can see it as the movement of the wind, of the elements, of our own thought waves, of our own emotions. <laughs> that when we find our central axis, it's kind of like, finding Hokulea, which was the um, Polaris, the northern star for the Polynesian navigators, you have a sense of where you are in the context of this, you know, ocean of creation. So there's all these different movements. And movement isn't just something that we do, it's who we are. It's how we feel ourselves as a gravitational field held within a larger gravitational field. So astrology, you know, sometimes people will have magical thinking or spiritual bypassing. Oh, well, I have, you know, this retrograde or, you know, this square in my planet, or I'm going through this transit. And so there's nothing that I can do about it. They're really missing the point. The point is, you know, we can see this when we're looking at infants. Okay. There's developmental phases. When we understand that these developmental phases, they present throughout our life, the, the celestial body, it's just like we could take, um, you know, a sample of our blood and get a sense of what's happening in the larger system. We're not disconnected from the cosmos in the same way that the phases of the moon pull on the tides of the earth. And, you know, women, we experience these phases in our own lunar cycle. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's self-evident that there's, there's magnetic fields that are flowing on us and it's part of this larger cycle. So it's just very interesting to have this other kind of like, it's an objective perspective of our subjective experience. So I remember, you know, I grew up in the seventies and I remember there was this little, um, you know, it was like a Rexall drugs or something. And they used incense was big then. And there'd be ones for different astrological signs. And part of the, you know, the, the, 
you know, the, the fad of the time was what sign are you? So, you know, oh, well, this is my sign and this, oh, well, you're an Aries. So you're just this way. And, you know, that always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, okay, you know, there's truth in that, but I'm so much more. So I developed kind of just a real sophomoric interest. And then I became more curious about it. And I remember drawing charts. I was, um, I must've been about 18 or 19 at the time. And I did charts for everyone in my immediate family. And then you look up in these books, you know, okay, well, what is sun in the fourth house and this sign squaring moon in the, you know, whatever house. And you look it up and it was just like so insightful and so accurate. And I thought, my God, this is amazing. This isn't speaking to somebody who knows about me and about my history like, wow, how can this be? And it's kind of like one of these mysteries that, you know, people were so in touch and were studying the stars and like yoga, it was a transmission that occurred. How do we, how do we find anything? So that was really interesting to me. And usually, you know, what I've discovered is when I look into my chart or somebody asks me to do a reading for them, it's no coincidence. There's, there's pressures, there's tensions that are happening and it can help us to relax into that experience. Like, okay, you know, I'm in Uranus opposition, approximately 41, 42, um, midlife crises. So we might, we might have it within our, um, colloquial understanding, like, oh, this person's going through midlife crises. But then we look at it and we can look at the houses and we can see, all right, well, this is triggering this in my chart. And these are real opportunities to reevaluate this aspect of my life. And this is either going to break me or it's going to, um, you know, help me to create, reorder my priorities. This is, again, that crisis slash opportunity or let's say around 49, 48 to 52, it depends, you're in your Chiron return. Um, you know, as we get older, there's less of these significant transits with the outer planets. Um, you know, the next big one would be our next Saturn return and our Uranus, op and our, um, Uranus conjunction, which happens in our 80s. You know, at around 50 and around the Saturn return, which would be around 56, 57, these are points when people really make a shift and they get in touch. Like, what have I been doing? Am I going to fall? Am I going to crumble or melt down into the sense of like I had these ideas of what fulfillment were, maybe I've, I've achieved them, but I still have deeper longings. It's a real turning point in your life. And you'll see either people start to really age and dvesha, they start to like divide themselves from the life force. They get out of that anugraha of the flow of reinventing themselves. And maybe that reinvention is even taking like a different kind of personal inventory. Like, I thought this was important, but look what I have. Or, you know, this is really valuable. Or I spent all this energy investing in this thinking it was important, but really this is what I'm longing for. 
So we can use it as another window to um, get a sense of where our development is happening on a more interior level. So the stars, you know, the astral bodies, they're not defining what's going on. It's, it's merely another perspective in the same way that an Ayurvedic practitioner might read your different pulses. It's another way of getting a pulse on where you are in your evolution. And you're like, okay, right now I'm facing this wound. I'm, you know, Chiron return. Thank God it's in my ninth house. You know, this is where I can really work on my philosophy, my epistemology of life or, oh my God. It's happening in my 10th house. Um, this is where I'm out in the world and my career and my work. And, you know, I need to be careful. I need to be even more um, self-aware because I could really um, be crucified. You know, I, what I'm doing could be misconstrued. I have to be that much more precise and that much more aware of my environment. So see, or maybe it's in my sixth house. I need to be really aware about my, my personal health, my physical body. You know, there might be, like I might be setting up a precursors for real health crisis. So it's just, you know, it's not defining, but it offers perspectives as far as what's going on in your life. And then we don't, you know, in some ways, we don't have to take it so personally. and We can just see, all right, this is natural. This is the cycle that I'm in, and I have choices. And isn't it so similar with yoga also? With the, I find that sometimes it's like you have to have the physical experience, but it's, um, it's, it's evidence-based <laughs> when you actually do these practices it's it's like oh oh I am actually in in greater alignment oh I I am able to breathe better oh wow this you know physical you know pain or you know the stitch on my side it's gone or like even like wow I'm able to be a little bit more spacious with the people in my family how cool absolutely yeah I mean you know it's like when when you make a shift it's going to show up in every area of your life. So that's where I love, you know, the yoga practice is really dealing with our own constellation of cells, of stories, you know, the relationships between our systems, um, you know, and then we can see it mirrored out in the cosmos as well, where, you know, astrology is wonderful and we may, you know, we can make a shift in our mind and sometimes that will be profound enough where we can penetrate ourselves. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm a, a wholehearted believer in yoga as far as like really paying attention to our own body of wisdom. That's a wonderful place <laughs> to end for today. Thanks, Shanae, for your... Thank you. Oh, your questions are so juicy. Great. I'm Sucking so on the juice over here. <laughs> Us too on this end. Right on. <laughs> Thanks, Bhavani. Namaskara. Thank you for listening. 
I hope this conversation has inspired you to take these teachings on for yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. For more information about Bhavani Maki and her online and in-person teachings, including the Yoga Sutra Wisdom School, online Patanjali Yoga Sutra Mentorship, and her continuing classes and trainings, please visit www.bhavanimaki.com. That's B-H-A-V-A-N-I-M-A-K-I. You will find many resources, including sound bites of the Patanjali Yoga Sutra Samadhi Pada and Sadhana Pada for free, as well as a free yoga class. Thank you again. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations from the heart. Please join us as we continue to walk this revelatory path into deep personal inquiry through yoga as a path toward our unique, true spiritual awakening. Jalaruha mitra jashatru netram kalusha pa